You are listening to Prevention is the New Cure, all things health and NHS with a political twist. With me, Dr. Helen Stokes Lampard and Steve Bryan MP. Hi, Helen. This is episode 21 and the first of 2024. I know. Can't you believe time's flown so quickly? Christmas gone in a flash. I know it has, hasn't it? Last time we were on the podcast seems ages ago, it was only a few weeks ago, but we had Charlie Bethel on, who's, uh, who runs Men's Sheds. And um, I've been in touch with a few Men's Sheds in the constituency since who've heard it, and I'm going to visit the one in Orsford, um, which I said, I think, on the last podcast I was going to do. But he was good fun, Charlie, wasn't he? We had a lot of feedback from that. He was excellent. You know, I, since that episode, I had a patient in surgery who completely spontaneously and hadn't heard the podcast um, mentioned that despite the amazing care I'm giving him as my GP, his he felt he was really turning the corner with his development and progress of some quite complicated issues he's going through because he just signed up and started going to men's sheds in Litchfield. And it was really heartwarming. This, this chap was there with his wife and they'd both been at the end of their tether and just seeing the difference that it was making doing something practical. And it was that wonderful phrase, standing shoulder to shoulder with people, not sort of face to face. And I, I really, really was struck by that. So, uh, yeah, huge thanks to, thanks to Charlie and the team for the work they yeah. do. Yeah, I was thinking actually about them over Christmas because I guess, you know, if you go to something like a group, a support group or a, sh- a men's shed, you probably really miss it over Christmas, don't you? Because Chris- loneliness is one of the biggest problems at Christmas mm. for some people who don't have family. Um, but very, we're very fortunate that we do. Uh, how mm. was your Christmas? What, what happened? What happened to stokeslampard.com? Stokes Lampard had a really lovely Christmas, time with a family in Wales and got to catch up with some dear friends that we've not seen for a few years, partly because of the pandemic. But then New Year got messed up quite big time because COVID struck my family yet again. But we'll come on to COVID later. But but yeah, so um, all changed for New Year, but had a very pleasant time despite that and despite the hideous weather. What about you, Steve? What did you get up to? Yeah, we, we did a bit of travelling, really. So we were down in um, Devon in Exeter with my sister-in-law and her family. And so we did drive on Christmas Day and then drove back on Boxing Day mm. night, which is quite a lot of driving on Christmas Day, Boxing Day. But, you know, last year we had Christmas at home with the kids and uh, and they said they were bored. <laughs> Charming, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, so if I think back to Christmases past, what were the ones I enjoyed the most? It was when I was with my cousins, mm. you know, boxing and punching each other and stuff. So um, mm. not that that happened, not that we saw, um, but they did that. They they got to hang out with their cousins um, and Monty got to see his cousins. So Monty being my Black Labrador for new new listeners, he got to see his cousins, which he enjoyed very much. And, does, and I guess Monty adores Christmas, all the people, all the he presents. does like Christmas. He, ha- he has a stocking that says Santa Paws. And nice. um, in nice. the weeks leading up to Christmas, it comes out and he knows exactly what it is. And it gets hung up by the fireplace with the kids' stockings. And um, he, yeah, he nudges it all the all the way until till Santa, doggy Santa comes and fills it up with treats. In fact, he's still got uh, a present unopened from the stocking because uh, unlike wow. children, Monty can't sort of be trusted to open his presents and then just, you know, gently play with each of them or eat eat, eat a bit from each packet. It just all goes down at once. So we ration him. So he's yeah. on the he's on the chicken meat-filled bone at the moment. Nice. Um, Very tasty. Currently, yeah, he's currently gnawing at it underneath my desk uh, as we're on the podcast. So if you hear noise, that's what it will be. So no, he's had a good he's had a good time. Well he did on um on Christmas night he got something in his ear. Which we don't know what it was. I mean a spider or a bug or something goes in his ear and he had a massive, massive panic. 
flapping the ear, Bless. tilting the head, rubbing the head against me. Um, so I don't know, something in the ear. But um, you know, I took him out in the wind. It seemed to blow it out. Very scientific. Very scientific. No, I, I, I know. I know. Call me a vet. Um, anyway, <laughs> New Year's resolutions. I, really I, I uh, rumors uh, reach me, Helen, that you are a maker of New Year's resolutions. You know, it's not not really. I'm, I'm not a fan of making resolutions I can't keep. I think that's the, that's the key thing. I'm not one of these who'll make completely unrealistic uh, resolutions and then break them two weeks later. I, I like to try and commit to doing the healthy stuff that I should be doing anyway, but has, la- has lapsed, particularly in December. So it's going to be back to being strict about the 16-hour fasting. So my husband and I, uh, oh, early last year, moved to not eating before noon each day and not eating after eight o'clock in the night. So effectively, you only eat between noon and 8 p.m. So you have two no. meals a day instead of the three. The Jeremy Hunt diet. Is it? That's what he does. He doesn't eat breakfast. It, mm. And I mean, I've always been a massive breakfast person all my adult life. So it was quite a change, but I definitely, we both actually feel better for it. Like, not necessarily lost any weight on it, but certainly works there. But also, you know, keeping alcohol is more occasional for a treat. <laughs> and the other one is rationing chocolate. Now, I'm not the greatest sweet tooth in the world, but when chocolates are just sitting around, the temptation is to just pick at them. And so rationing them, chocolate becomes dessert for the next however long the chocolates last. The problem is mm. there's an awful mountain of chocolate in our house at the moment. Suspected yeah, to get okay. taken into work and offered round. How about you? What about you? Well, I, I just should have said I should have said Happy New Year at the start, shouldn't I? Yeah, um, you should. Well, what I actually say is um, with, with best wishes for the new year. Because see, somebody said Happy New Year to me, uh, my wife actually, um, and I said, well, that remains to be seen. Which is rather a grumpy response, isn't it? That is but, pretty grumpy. Uh, but I mean, I'm just saying, you know, that it does remain to be seen whether it is a happy new year, doesn't it? She said, mm. oh, well, what the real expression is, of course, is wishing, wishing you a happy you. new year. Yeah. So that's why I, you know, that's what, that's what I'm grumpily responding on that. Moving swiftly on. Anyway, yeah. um, new year, same issues. Uh, we are, as we record, uh, in the midst, just at the start of another junior doctor strike. This time a oh. six day one. Oh, Scheduled for six days anyway. I can't believe that we're at this we've got to this point i'm so sad about it no i hear you um but i suppose the challenge is that they're not asking for a you know six or eight or nine or ten percent pay rise they're asking for a 35 percent pay rise now you know this government is not going to do that uh, the next government, if if it were a Labour government, where Street and Keir Starmer have been very clear, they're not going to do that. So I guess the BMA trade union leadership have got two choices, really. They either climb down, call off the strikes and talk, mm. or they go on strike forever. Because the Secretary of State was very clear that they stop the strikes, they'll be around the table within 20 minutes. And they'll be talking. And it seems that she has an offer to make. And listening to the BMA on day one of the strike, which, as we record, this is Wednesday, I, I, there's a slight softening in the line and they're talking about restoration, pay restoration over a number of years, because they okay. say there's been a 35 percent pay derogation. So mm-hmm. what I'd like to see is I'd like ministers to acknowledge there's been pay derogation over the years because yep. there undoubtedly has from the financial yep. crash onwards for all sorts of perfectly understandable reasons. Um, and I think it would be it would be in intellectually sensible to acknowledge that well they've, um, done, they've done it for consultants yeah yeah exactly uh and, and i do think that, you know i don't know whether you saw pat cullen's uh new year message to the royal college of nursing last week i was on some of the media talking about that but 
you know, she's talking about renewed strike action for the nurses. There's no question. Yeah. I think we talked about this on the last pod, but the we nurses did. are furious. Yeah. The nurses are furious about the consultants pay deal. And it sort of radicalized them in a way. The junior doctors presumably are, well, they're ongoing furious, right? Um, and so it does seem to be a kind of increasing radicalization activism across the health unions at the moment, where they're sort of encouraging, almost encouraging each other. And I just think everybody just needs to take a breath you know, proper, proper, proper remaining Christmas chocolate in the mouth, um, and and suck on that while they step back, uh, step back from the brink. Because we don't need to have six days; we don't need to have five more days of strikes. You know, they could they could stop, and they could be talking by tea time. I so I hear you. I know you've done quite a lot of media on this, and I haven't done much media on this partly because I'm not sure what more I can say in this space. Um, you know, my thing is everybody has to get around the table. Everybody has to make compromises and that's both sides because that's what negotiation is all about i'm interested in what you say about softening of the narrative i hadn't picked up on that um at this moment but if that's the case that that's positive to hear i mean i do speak with and work alongside really amazing junior doctors all the time who are bitter and frustrated and resentful and I think there's been this, I think the point you're making about a fervor of everyone whipping everybody else up into increasing anger and frustration is absolutely right. There's definitely a, um, a, a, a high current of emotion through all this, which is making it very hard for people to do exactly as you said, which is take a deep breath, step back and think about how rationally we can come to resolution here. I guess my fear is that all this is going to drag on out to sort of general election time. So for the reasons you've just outlined, that this will drag on in some bitter form of, you know, applying for new mandates for strike action, more strikes, more disruption, more pain for the NHS, more pain for the public, um, more pain for all the individuals involved on all sides. And then we'll get a new government in whatever way, shape or form we have, and they're going to come in and they won't need to appease any one political body. They'll be in with a new mandate. They'll do what they do. And that's going to be a lot. Be a, there's, this, there's always be this massive expectation on a new government, which will become a, a crushing disappointment because they're not going to be able to deliver if there's no additional money. And I think that's my worry is that will then this discontent will rumble on. So if we could get this nailed down now and go for some sort of multi-year settlement that makes logical sense, that absolutely acknowledges the pain, the suffering and the derogation, degradation in pain that's happened, but that is workable. That just feels like the... Yeah, I think that's right. Because, I mean, look, nobody in Whitehall terms expects Keir Starmer, if he were to become prime minister later on this year, to have lots of money to play with and to be able to dramatically increase the NHS budget. You know, that is just absolutely not the reality. So you're right, there would be renewed disappointment there. And and in a way, it's harder to be a Labour Health Secretary than it is to be a Tory one, because, you know, people expect a Labour Labour Health Secretary to lavish it with lavish it with funds. And if you mm. if you listen to um people who were around the early Blair Brown government, you know, they will say that they one of the mistakes they made was they lavished the NHS with with new money and a lot of it just went on for consultants at the time pretty expanded pay deals and and I think that's that's probably fed some expectation that that would continue and of course it didn't latterly mm. in the Blair Brown government and into the coalition the thing that worries me is that look I mean the broader arguments about NHS how it's funded um the mix between secondary care and primary care that's all for 
elected politicians. That's for us guys, right? That's not yep. for doctors, doctors in training, whatever you call them. It's not for them. And it's certainly not an argument to be had out there on the picket line. That That's for us. Um, what, what worries me is that the day job is is in jeopardy while all this is going on. So, you know, just take the local health trust that I represent here in Mid-Hampshire. They're part of the new hospitals program. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be, it's a big consultation just launched just before Christmas about the, the new hospital that's supposed mm-hmm. to be being built between Winchester and Basingstoke. Lots of very serious questions that need to be answered about the future of mix of acute services. Yeah. Do you think they're thinking about that today? No way, um, because they've got they've got a, a major strike on their hands. That said, and junior doctors would would want me to say this, and I'm sure you know this to be true as well. Not all junior doctors are on strike. Oh no! Um, and in fact, there are some trusts where it's it's barely fifty percent are out. Mm. So they're not all on strike, and that was the same with the nurses. So I think it's worth um, worth saying that. Yeah, let's move on from strike action, Steve, because we've been here before. Yeah, select committee. Um, So I suppose this links in a way to that is that just before Christmas, we had two a busy, busy week. So we had the new Secretary of State, Victoria Atkins, in before us. We covered a wide range of issues. We kept being interrupted by votes, which happens (laughs) when you're holding select committees when the House is sitting downstairs. Um, But we covered a lot of issues from uh, prevention staff to cancer um, and, of course, the industrial dispute. And that got quite a lot of coverage with her saying, my door is open. We need to stop strikes and talk. Ah, okay. Yeah. Later on that week, on the last day of term, on the Wednesday, the last day of term, we had on the 19th, we had prime minister in before liaison committee, which is when all the chairs of all the select committees mm. get together and a certain number of us ask questions of the prime minister. Yeah. And it's quite high profile. And I was asking him about uh, industrial action and he fully admitted that it was seriously harming his cut the waiting list pledge and yeah. reiterated what I just said. And also I asked him about dentistry. Um, and we might touch on that a bit later on, but mm. I asked him about um, about that, which in my view, a uh, controversial statement coming up, in my view, the problems with dentistry, NHS and private, is more of a political problem to this government than the waiting list. Well, that is interesting, controversial. I'm sure it's massive for constituency MPs. Uh, and the, the, I'm sure your mailbags are absolutely full of it. As a GP, Dental challenges, community dentistry is an absolute nightmare because a not insubstantial proportion of my working week gets taken up with dental related issues because people can't find an NHS dentist. They can't afford a private dentist. They're in pain. They need help. And so we have to see them and just do do what we can, even though it's not in our contract. We're not resourced or trained to do dental care. We just do it as like Good Samaritan effectively. Uh, And that worries me a lot. Well, the reason I raised it with the Prime Minister is because the Nuffield Trust had brought out a report uh, that day on the 19th of December, and you find it online, which said that NHS dentistry is under its biggest crisis since the NHS was formed. Yeah. And I think I would do it. And, it and it was like an interesting it. test question for you here. As a GP, in mm. your caseload, mm. do you hear more about I'm stuck on the waiting list or do you hear more about dentistry problems? I hear more about waiting lists, actually, because that's because people expect me to be able to do something about the waiting list, whereas they don't expect me to be able to fix the dentistry problem. <laughs> if only that principle applied to MPs. I, I hear about <laughs> I hear about it all, most of which I can not control. But it's the opposite for MPs. So if you uh, asked every MP, yeah. how many, how much of your caseload is coming in, people saying, you know, I can't get that urology mm. um, appointment or that yeah. that um, orthopaedic uh, procedure that I need doing, uh, you you wouldn't find every MP. 
you know, th- we all get it occasionally. Mm. If you ask every MP who's got a problem with people looking for an NHS dentist, yeah. every single hand would go up, yeah. every single hand going up. And the reason for that is that I think there's a lot of dirty data in yeah. the NHS waiting list. So there's a lot of people who are no longer on it. I'm on it twice or three times. Exactly. So when they Mm. say there are 7.4 million people on the NHS waiting list, no, there's not. There's 7.4 million things waiting on the waiting list. And it could, you know, you could be waiting for half a dozen things, but you'll appear each time. So I suspect that. and, And also the other thing, finally, is that it's clustered. So it's it's worse in the east of England than it is in the southeast of England and so that's why I think that we hear different stories through our mailbags yeah no I I, well I I can well believe that certainly in my area in the Midlands a neurology is one of the absolute nightmares I mean a couple of years waiting time for neurology appointments but then other things yeah our imaging in my locality is actually pretty good and pretty quick so it it, it, you're right hugely variable Um, but I've certainly got many patients who are waiting for many things you know waiting to see three different specialists and and one operation you know so yeah it it, it's it's a complex messy thing As ever proves the point, doesn't it? That this is—it's not a national health service, is it? It's lots of different health services, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and and it's and it's a four nation challenge. You know, we talk quite a lot bit about NHS England, but I mean, the the, the dental challenge is right across the four nations of the UK. Um, and bad everywhere. Just uh, family members uh, struggling to stay to stick with, be able to kept mm. on the lists of NHS dentists, clinging on by their fingernail. Um, but but in my own area. The NHS dentist closing at a rate of knots and then you know colleagues frantically trying to find other dentists they can register with. Anyway, mm-hmm. we'll Take come back week. to dentistry again. Okay, welcome back. Uh we are going to cover some health stories now that we've spotted uh between us on our we flag these up, don't we, on our WhatsApp group so we, we do. see a health story. Um RSV jab could mm. cut baby hospital admissions by more than 80% study suggests. What is that story, Helen? This is a really positive story. You know, vaccination is one of our perennial topics. Uh, the best thing, you know, the best way to prevent disease is to prevent it ever happening in the first place, not just early detection. And because, you know, primary prevention, the ultimate primary prevention is vaccination. So there is a new product a actually a monoclonal antibody treatment so not a more traditional type of vaccination which takes a bit of disease and inoculates you with it this is actually an antibody that you inject into young children to prevent them get this horrible infection called respiratory syncytial virus so rsv and um, commonly causes waves of infection in the winter months and can lead to really serious nasty lung problems did any of your children ever have rsv steve no thank thank god but i've certainly been in to my hospital trust and other hospital trusts at, at winter time and they've been dealing with a lot of said cases yeah you, you get waves of it and you know you sort of we see it in the surgery all the time now obviously the vast majority of children don't need hospital care but a lot of them pitch up to gp surgeries and it's really nasty a sort of dry cough high fever breathing challenges can be quite frightening well it can be very frightening for parents and uh, my understanding is that about thirty thousand uh, young children very young children babies are admitted to hospital every year so if we can reduce admissions by the order of 80 percent, that's a massive saving in terms of the stress and anxiety and ill health but also saving for the nhs as well but of course it's going to be the logistics of uh, getting it through all the regulatory hurdles and so on to get it happened yeah well i mean now what has to happen is that there needs to be a price negotiated by the government for mm. the nhs um and 
obviously that will be go through the usual processes. It needs to, and it's not going to make any difference now for this winter, of no. course, but fingers crossed it might for next. And just going back to our first conversation about, you know, the junior doctor strike and the pressure on acute trust, which are running very hot. They're running yeah. at full plus capacity today and their busiest time of the year. Then just think, as you just said, you know, if you can massively reduce uh, admissions for something like RSV, then prevention is the new cure. Somebody Absolutely. once said that. But, do you know, it would make a great name for a podcast. It would, wouldn't it? So anyway, we always try and reference where we read these things. It mm. was obviously in a lot of the daily press and it mm. was on the media, but it was actually a study in the New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah. It's called the Harmony Study. Involved 8,000 yeah. children, as you say, up to the age of 12 months. Uh, so if people want the proper information uh, unfiltered by the media, New England Journal of Medicine. Which is one of the great and highly regarded uh, Very journals. much so, yeah. Yeah. Next. Okay, Steve, are you a sweet or a savoury person? We've had this conversation before, I think. Uh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I like savoury. <laughs> we did Secret Santa at the on Christmas Day at Go my on. family, and there was a Secret Santa WhatsApp group, of course. Um, I don't know why, because surely that defeats the whole object. Anyway, um, and all I posted on there was, you know, I like sweets. Um, and so when, when I opened my Secret Santa, there was some... There were some treats in there. Well, actually, we we do Secret Santa at the surgery, which is quite a major endeavour by one of our receptionists to organise about 35 of us, I think, participate in that, but with a very, very strict limit of a fiver of what you can spend it on. Anyway, um, I mm -hmm. hope the person I bought for likes what they got, and I had Don't... some very nice um, hand wash and hand cream, but that's not edible. Oh, I hate um, hand cream. Anyway, another story anyway, for another I, day. I'm a savoury person, and I love mm. cheeses. Yes, Patty, you know, the sort of thing, olives, all the umami kind of flavours. That's me. Um, and dessert's very nice, but I was a bit upset to hear about the with the um, big news about E. coli infection in cheeses. There was, did you pick up on the massive recall of, I think it was Mrs. Kirkham's cheeses before Christmas? Yeah, poor old Mrs. Kirkham. She's yeah. had a bad Christmas. She's had a really bad Christmas, absolutely. So what, they've recalled a load of her cheeses? Yeah, they did. And the, what's difficult to work out, and I haven't, really picked up what the truth behind this is so e coli is a really horrible food poisoning infection yeah. can be fatal um, and in fact one person has died in scotland from it there have been 30 confirmed cases of this very specific subtype an aggressive subtype of e coli uh in recent months i think since since, since the autumn so i just you know, it's always very disappointing when your favourite food turns out to be um, a bit nasty. So E. coli has been a one to watch out for. But all the usual stuff um, with food poisoning about being particularly careful with hand hygiene, particularly careful with cooking things and vulnerable people should not be eating unpasteurised products. So presumably that's pregnant women, yeah. people with the weakened immune system, etc. Absolutely. So pregnant women and the very young children and people who um, essentially were on the shielding list before um, for the pandemic. It's not a bad uh, gauge as to whether you're vulnerable or not, but weakened immune yeah. system. You'll know it. You'll have been told if you're on chemotherapy about avoiding certain things. Yeah, no, that, that is a nightmare. I do love cheese. I, I particularly like Vacheran, which is that runny oh, cheese that comes runny. in a little round wooden box. Yeah, yeah. But what will happen is I'll buy it. Yeah. And it, get, it, it my wife will only allow it if it's in a tub, in a sealed tub. And even then, dex. apparently, yeah. it's very unsociable and antisocial. So I, what will happen is I'll go out. And then when I come home, I'll find it's been put out on the patio. <laughs> 
Yeah. You know your place, um, don't you, Steve? You I do. I do. So I, I sort of I have resorted previously to sitting out on the patio with my cheese and my biscuits. What a tragic image that is. That but is anyway, tragic. I didn't. I, I didn't actually get any this Christmas because we were at a Christmas market, the infamous Winchester Christmas market, and I yeah. saw it Bashran on Saturday. Yeah. I said, "Can I get some Bashran?" And she said, "Well, yeah. she pretended not to hear me." So I got the children to ask, and the um, the answer came back, "No, no, uh, no." So yeah. uh, anyway, um, um, but actually, more tummy stuff. I picked up on another gut problem. Have you heard about this one about Shigella? The Shigella, yeah, yeah, I did see this. Yeah, so the UK Health Security Agency again, isn't it? Have yeah. been um, reporting a concerning rise in Shigella cases, which is a gut infection that causes diarrhea, stomach cramps, and fever. Since the beginning of 2023, the number of extensively antibiotic-resistant Shigella cases has increased by 53%. Yeah, Blimey. yeah, it's. It- it's a pretty unusual, uncommon infection in the UK. It's, it's what we would think of as traditionally dysentery, and it can lead to things like bloody diarrhea and so on. So it's a pretty miserable thing. But usually it responds well to antibiotics if people have it badly. And this, what's worrying about this one, is it's a multiple drug-resistant version of Shigella. And interestingly, there's been a cluster in gay, bisexual, and men who have sex with men. Uh, so yeah. it implies they're sort of passing it on to one another. So, yeah, one to watch. And um, just a reminder, I guess, on the prevention angle about hand washing, being particularly careful. If you have got any diarrheal illness, um, as well as any vomiting illness, then absolutely to avoid uh, sexual intercourse and, and close sexual contact with people for at least a week afterwards to minimise the chance of passing infection. We talk about hand washing and staying away from schools and workplaces, but actually close intimate contact for even longer than that 48 hour window. Yeah, and I think the the agency would the, the health security agency would say obviously abstain from from sexual contact, but also you know avoid spas, yes. swimming, jacuzzis, yeah. hot tubs, yeah, yeah. sharing your towels um, until a week or so after symptoms have uh, have gone away. Because yeah, this is one of those this is one of those nasties, isn't it? And um, yeah, Absolutely. well done for you for raising it. Anyway, let's have a quick breather, and then we'll come back and talk about cancer, which we often do. So excellent news on cancer testing over the past year, Helen. I don't know whether you saw this story. It was well reported over Christmas. Almost 3 million people were seen for an urgent cancer check over the last 12 months. So throughout 2023, Uh, new new figures from NHS England. The number of people, uh, the number being tested has increased by more than a quarter compared with the same period before the pandemic. This is good. Prevention is the new cure, but also early detection is cancer's magic key, as we like to say. Yeah, no, this is this was one of those that was put out right over the Christmas. I think it was actually New Year's Day, wasn't it? Or New Year's Eve that this story came out. Really positive, constructive stuff um, about cancer testing, which I think we're all nobody's gonna argue this is is you know, with this. I guess there was a pushback from some of the cancer charities. This is all well and good, but there's still a long way to go. And detecting disease is one thing, but there's a treatment backlog that still needs to be dealt with. So I mean, I think I, you know. It's terrifying enough waiting for the results of a cancer test. Um, it's bad enough being told you've got cancer, but then a lot of people face delays before starting treatment. So I guess it's making sure that all the parts of the jigsaw puzzle fit together. But this is undoubtedly a good news story, which then just shines a spotlight on other parts of the cancer pathway. And I think what the government would say, he says with his former hat on, is that mm. these new community diagnostic centres, which we'd sort of talked about when I was at DH and the policy has been winding its way to opening them. And they sort of did open in mid 
mid mid year 2021 uh, are really really good do you, yeah. you as a gp you interact with the community diagnostic center in your area no, we don't because they, they bypass the GP surgery generally. If people are being called with them, we don't have access in my patch to send people to them. But I'm lucky. I've got a fantastic community, sort of what we used to call a cottage hospital, a community hospital only a couple of hundred yards from the surgery that, that has got diagnostic capabilities. So I can refer my patients for a chest X-ray just yards from the surgery. I used to be able to send them straight there as a walk-in. We had those rights. That's all been lost in, in recent years. Yeah, we need years, to get back that. to that. Oh, we I, so I, do. We I so remember do. when I was cancer minister visiting one of the hospitals in oxford and that was to that it was there as an extra tool in the box for ugps yeah. because you know instead of sending someone for one test and then waiting for that to come back and then the next one and having lots of different multi-channel referrals going on you could refer to the cdc the community diagnostic center and that would be sort of a, a rapid process where yeah. while you're there you can have various tests that your gps decided you need to have we need to yeah we, we, we might ask some questions on that on the select committee i think that'd be really positive because it. It allows GPs to function at a higher level when you've got access to rapid diagnostics. When you've got slow diagnostics, you're more likely to have to send patients to A&E or involve secondary care when there's a, when there's urgency about what's going on. You know, I can't wait three weeks to find out if my patient's got pneumonia. I can probably wait 24, 36 hours if for a local community hospital to give us a quick answer. So, you know, anyway, all for, all for yeah. discussion. But no, it's good. It's good to see that. I mean, Kelly Palmer, who we've had on the podcast, yeah. who's the National Cancer Director, and loads and loads of different things going on um, to, to help us detect. I mean, the, the cervical cancer screening um, that, that she talked about when she came on with us, the blood in P cancer warnings. Did you know that? Well, you, you wouldn't know this, um, but they are now appearing on what they call urinal mats, which is a horrible thing that sits <laughs> in the bottom of men's urinals. And you sort of, well, you, you might aim. Them. You might, yeah, it's just a target. It's a target to hit. In fact, yeah. we could have them domestically, almost like I can hear my daughter and wife saying that. <laughs> um, but what they do is they sit in the bottom of the urinals and they yeah. just, it's usually coloured mats with nothing written on them. But they now have blood in pee warnings on them, which yeah. in, in lots of public toilets, which I think is a really good idea. What doctor is one uh, looking for if you presented with blood in pee? I know what blood in poo would mean. What would pee mean? So blood and pee can mean um, comp that there's a cancer somewhere along the ur urinary tract. So whether there can be you know, a, a oh, bladder cancer. So that's that's the one thing. Uh, it can be a sign of infection. So water infections can present. Um, but also it could be a sign of stones in the tract. Now, mostly kidney stones are excruciatingly painful, but they can oh. present with with uh, blood. So uh, I think it's fair to say blood in your urine is not usually a good thing. So, I mean, it can be simple things like um, soreness and skin splits and so on, but you need to be tested. I mean, if, if you haven't obviously got a urinary infection, which is being otherwise treated, and you've got blood in your urine, we want to know about it. Uh, it needs to be checked out. Uh, right. Okay. Um, well, we come, uh, Parliament returns next week mm -hmm. and uh, it's going to be election year. And we know that now because the Prime Minister has said that the election could technically, it could have been on the 28th of January 2025 mm. um, when I will be 41 which may give you a clue as to what's what horrible event is coming up for me in the next few weeks. Um, <laughs> but the, we know that 24 is going to be election year. Uh, we don't know whether it's going to be in the spring or in late spring or in the autumn or in the early winter. Um, but we know it's going to be this year. So obviously the select committee is cracking on. We, we don't, we're not privy to the election date. So we just crack on with the work we're doing. And so we've got our big inquiries, which we, we talk about men's health quite a bit. We're going to do some more on men's health on the podcast. Um, obviously the, 
the pharmacy inquiry continues, uh, as does our deliberations to try and produce our report on assisted dying. And when mm. we have news on that, uh, and I'm not in contempt of parliament by giving you more, I will tell you more and we maybe discuss that a bit more. And our prevention inquiry, which obviously is bread and butter for this podcast, that cracks on and uh, we're going to be doing the addictions next on that. So oh, good. Um, smoking, alcohol, drugs, and we're also turning our gambling. attention to... Uh, and gambling, yeah. And we're going to be um, then we're going to be doing sexual health. Great. So we've got quite a lot going on with the prevention inquiry. And we're also going to be doing a bit of work sort of post-Letby, which I think I mentioned last year on the pod, around um, patient safety slash leadership, sort of working title, I suppose. But, you know, mm. leadership in the NHS, uh, we're going to be looking at that and what that looks like in acute trusts and integrated care systems and all of that jazz. So, you know, we have one or two things going on. You won't be bored. You definitely won't be bored. We definitely won't be bored. No. And finally, because uh, I've got to go on the school run, uh, he says, juggling the balls, because um, well, I'm still at home at the moment doing what my wife does all the time and Indeed. complaining about it. Um, and she does it very well. Uh, but you spotted this great story about beer goggles. I don't know what that would mean, Helen, but you can enlighten us. So look, beer goggles is the concept that when people are intoxicated, they find other people more attractive than they would otherwise. Yeah. So the alcohol goes in, the ability to determine attractiveness goes down and people do things they might not otherwise do. Now, the great research team at the University of Portsmouth have undertaken some formal research of the beer goggles and discovered it's a fat myth. Apparently, we retain our ability to distinguish people's level of attractiveness despite the alcohol. So there's plenty of other silly things people do when they're intoxicated. But I just thought that was quite an amusing little one. Well, presumably, presumably because alcohol lowers your inhibitions, mm -hmm. um, then that makes you more confident. And uh, that's where that myth gets some mileage from. Confident. People often smile and laugh a lot more, and there's nothing more attractive than a great big smile, although I'm reliably in right? Apparently Ooh, so. Most attractive advice. thing somebody can wear is a big smile. So being grumpy about New Year would not be a good one. It's not an attractive feature, Steve. Not a good feature. Move okay. On. No, moving on. Anyway, um, so COVID's on the rise again. Yes. Uh, I just wanted to raise that just before we close. And there's obviously flu out, quite, well, very nasty flu, isn't there? I mean, yeah. I've heard from different people since the world's gone back to work this week a bit who've sort of said, oh, yeah, we're, we're difficult Christmas because we were all ill and there's a lot of nasty flu out there I, I see that I think that's basically what I had before Christmas when I felt rotten um yeah. but that's really putting pressure on the acute system isn't it it is I mean this is it's and always busy yeah it's about the busiest time of year for the NHS first week two weeks in January is always incredibly busy respiratory viruses at their peak we've had loads of social mixing over Christmas so yeah every environment you talk to people high levels of sickness at the moment because people are genuinely sick so everybody do the bit we can we seem to have forgotten the lessons from the pandemic we've forgotten the mask wearing when we're sick ourselves we've forgotten to wash our hands as often we can all do these little bits and pieces to protect ourselves and others and if we can sort of what's it flatten the curve reduce the peak of it to not well, yeah, it's so at true. the same time you know, so many people had big Christmas parties, which were literally just spreading the, the viruses, weren't they? And um, and of course, that's what didn't happen over Christmas, which is maybe one of the in, during the pandemic, which may be one of the reasons why people are suffering so bad now, because they've got such lower resistance to some mm. of these viruses. But I know I know nothing. Anyway, um, we've got a busy time coming up. So should I tell you who we got coming on? Yes, please, please. 
So the new sector estate's going to be coming on, uh, hopefully later this month. Um, we're just kicking dates around with her at the moment, but we're really looking forward to talking to her about her new brief. And Sarah Hurley's coming on, who used to be the chief dental officer. So we're talking dentistry a Brilliant. lot earlier on. So Sarah is good fun, and uh, she's she doesn't mince her words. Uh, like a certain other lady I know on a podcast uh, <laughs> and Sarah will be good and she'll be very she she will tell it like it is what she learned from her time as chief dental officer so there's that and we're also going to be talking to Harpal Kumar oh. um, who as we know runs Grail and is the, which is the company doing the gallery trial which is the big cancer predictor which you're obviously involved in professionally mm-hmm. as well so we'll be talking to Harpal. That's a fantastic lineup to start the year thank you not looking bad, forward is it? to it all it'll bad. be ace Okay, right. School run beckons. Safe, uh, safe travels. The weather. Thank you very rubbish. much. Podcast at stevebryan.com. Find us on all the usual social media channels. Please remember to like the podcast because that really helps. And we will see you next time. Bye, Helen. Take, take care. Bye. Bye.